So our scripture reading today is from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 105. So if you uh, were around all this week at Backyard Bible Camp, those numbers sound familiar to you. Uh, All of this week, the children and in reality, uh, the teens and adults also have been memorizing Psalm 119, verses 105 to 110, and then several of them memorized through verse 112 as well. And so it seemed appropriate that we should, sort of in wrap-up of Backyard Bible Camp, that perhaps we would all take a look at these verses together. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So, uh, some disclaimers up front. Some of you uh, kids are probably listening and scratching your heads. At Backyard Bible Camp this year, we used the New International Version for the Bible memory. That's why the words running through your head are different from the words you just heard me say. Um, We try to choose a a version that will uh, most uh, uh, easily communicate to uh, a child's mind, but also uh, will uh, retain the the truths of Scripture. So that's it. Uh, In in C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew, uh, which is the, uh, in today's lingo, it's the origins book of the Chronicles of Narnia. So if you haven't read The Magician's Nephew, it's about how all those things came about in Narnia. But in this book, Jadis, the queen of Karn or Charn, admits that she in her world destroyed every living creature in order to prove to her sister that she, Jadis, was the more rightful and powerful queen of all the land. And she does this by using what's called the deplorable word. Thankfully, C.S. Lewis never tells us what that deplorable word is because, well, I mean, who among us hasn't wanted to prove to our sister once and for all that we are stronger than she? And so we all would be tempted to probably use the deplorable word had he admitted to us what it was. 
And so it's sort of a play on that, that deplorable word that we have our title today, uh, the adorable word. Uh, and so as I said, all this week, your kids have been memorizing and their friends uh, this portion of Psalm 119. If you're familiar with Scripture or with the Psalms, uh, when I say Psalm 119, uh, there are probably things that come to your mind. You probably think, long. Uh, and if you didn't think long when I said our Scripture begins in verse 105 of that chapter, at that point you thought, wow, that's a long chapter. This is not quite the middle, but it is pretty close to the middle. Psalm 119, you're not wrong, is the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses. It has right around 2,500 words in English. Uh, it, is, it is the longest chapter by far. And then when you realize that the entire psalm is a prayer, all 176 verses are directed to God. Perhaps you also begin to think, man, this dude loves to pray. Uh, and you wouldn't be wrong. And then if, I, if you were to find out that uh, when Pastor Bailey's sermons on his laptop reach 1,500 to 2,000 words, he knows it's going to be tight for our time schedule. And then you realize this is anywhere from 500 to 1,000 words longer. You know, perhaps you start to be a little suspicious of this man's prayer. 2,500 words in a prayer. Does he love prayer or does he love to hear himself pray? If you read Psalm 119, you realize that the major point, or you may assume that the major point of the psalm is God's word. And you're not incorrect. Every verse, all 176 verses, every verse mentions God's word. He uses at least eight different words to describe God's word. Eight different Hebrew words, that is. There are probably even more in our English language. Two different Hebrew words for word, law, commandment, judgments, testimony, precepts, statutes. Every sentence, 176 sentences, he mentions God's word. Not only does this guy love to hear himself pray, he seems a little obsessed. He talks about God's word, everything that God says, or everything that God has had written down, everything that we hear or read from God, the stories and the commands, the promises, the worldviews. God writes, speaks to us in his word about how the world came to be, what's wrong with the world, and how do we fix it? Every worldview has some answer to those questions. How did we come to be? What's wrong with this world? How do we fix it? And what happens when we die? God speaks in his word to answer all of these questions. He warns about consequences. He promises mercy. He tells us why we are the way we are. All with his words. 
Certainly his words include his law, but they also include creation. We're told in the New Testament that creation exists and is sustained by the word of God's power. We're told that Jesus himself is called the word. He is the word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The psalmist rejoices in the law of God. The Ten Commandments are called the Ten Words. Everything that God says with an emphasis on His authority. The first five books of the Bible, we call them the law of God or the Torah. And yes, they contain many commands and regulations, but they also, those five books, contain stories. Stories of mercy and of atonement. The psalm begins in verse 1 with this amazing assertion. My highest happiness comes from following your law. Happiness and following God's law in the psalmist's mind are, are converged. They are linked together. Do any of us feel that way about God's law? That my, my ultimate happiness is found in obedience to God. To walk in the law certainly includes obvious things, you know, don't do these things, do these things, but it also includes loving others, loving God more than the rest of the world, loving others more than I love myself. This is all contained in the law of God. The psalmist speaks of God's judgments in Psalm 119, his ordinances, how God evaluates things, seeing things the way God sees them. What's God's judgment on the matter? And do I agree with that judgment? Am I in submission to that judgment? In God's judgment, cheating on your spouse is criminal. In God's judgment, denying the poor their needs is irreligious. In God's judgment, trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. The psalmist speaks of testimony. Testimony is here in part of our section today. God bears witness. He gives testimony to himself. A testimony is more than just a word. It's more of an official word. It's a word given with witnesses to hear. It's his covenant, his oath, God's promises. He has, be- he has borne testimony even against himself that what he says will stand forever. We can trust his word because God bears witness to them. In fact, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, they're also called God's testimony. They bear witness to us of what is right, what is good, what is true, what is delightful in God's eyes. The psalmist speaks of precepts. You know, we all know the phrase, the devil is in the details. Well, the devil alone is not in the details. God is also in the details. God cares about details. He gives us detailed, practical instruction. God, doesn't, God isn't interested in a vague scavenger hunt for you to follow and find him. Do you know that God wants you to know for certain whether or not you are his child? He doesn't want you to wonder about that. He makes it very clear. He gives you his precepts to understand these things. Often, when I don't want to live for God's glory, when I don't want to obey God, it's not because I have searched God's word and found his answers to be lacking. 
It's usually because I don't want to hear God's answers, and so I don't search His Word. God pronounces statutes, those things that God has written down, carved in stone, written in papyrus. According to Romans 1, He's written them on our hearts. The statutes, we know the law of God because it's written on our heart. There is a permanence to it. It's not only written in stone, but it's, it's carved in our own flesh. And commandments, rules. How do I live? What ought I to do? How do you love? How do you trust God? Because all of God's word contains all of God's authority, in one sense, everything that God says is a command. When God promises mercy and deliverance, he's commanding me to trust him, to live in a joyful adoration and acceptance of his mercy. As you can see from your blank page, I don't really have an outline. Uh, We'll just kind of work through each of the eight verses. I started trying to get clever, but Backyard Bible Camp Week is a horrible week for cleverness. And maybe you'll all delight in that. Maybe we'll set a new precedent here. We're going to look at all eight verses. They're these doublets. It's poetry, so there's like an A and a B, an A and a B. Some of them are parallel statements. Some of them are growing on statements, adding on. And so we'll just look at them. We won't really look at them like analyzing and dissecting the poetry of it all because, after all, it is poetry. And that's probably an important thing to write down on somewhere in your Bible, maybe at the top of every page of the Psalms, although that would take you some time. This is poetry. It's poetry. Sometimes if we overanalyze poetry, it's a little like overanalyzing a butterfly. The more you touch and rub the edges and the colors come off on your fingers and you realize those are the powders that actually help the butterfly fly and pretty soon you have analyzed the butterfly to the point that it's not a butterfly anymore. It's just a pile of mess that you need to wash off your hands. Sometimes if we overanalyze poetry, we can do that, can't we? And yet it's still worthwhile seeing and considering what the psalmist says. And so, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I know that Rich has pointed this out before. I have pointed this out before. Uh, When the Bible says that God's word is a lamp and a light, it's not a lamp or a light like anything you and I have experienced because this is the kind of light we usually think of. We don't think of torches and oil lamps. We think of million lumen flashlights that shine so far out ahead that we wouldn't be able to see our feet if we wanted to. When the Bible says that God's word is a lamp for my feet, he's not saying it's a floodlight for your future. He's saying it is a lamp for your feet for your path in front of you. Do you want to know what to do in six months? God says, why don't you concentrate on what you should do today? What does obedience look like today? What does faithfulness look like today? And you can find the answers in God's word. It lights our path. God shows us the steps to take. In Psalm, in verse 100. 
6, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. God's faithfulness to His Word is worthy of our faithfulness to His words. I have taken an oath that I will follow your righteous rules. Do you realize when you call yourself a Christian, that is what you have done? You've taken an oath. I will follow your ways. I am a Christian is a relatively new term, not totally relatively, like it only shows up in Acts 13, but in Acts 1 through 13, folks were simply called followers of the way or disciples. We have this strange idea that, that you can be a Christian first and then eventually you get to this uber level of Christianity, next level Christianity, and then you're a disciple. Uh, that's not how God views it. We're all disciples of Christ. We have all taken oaths and sworn, I will follow your righteous rules. Verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Severely afflicted. I am afflicted from life. What in life has you afflicted? It's usually one of three things. The world itself is broken. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, there is sickness. There is sorrow. There is death. Uh, we are afflicted just by walking through life in this world. I don't know if you've noticed this also, but not only is the world broken, you come into contact with sinners almost every day. Isn't that awful? Like the people around you, the people sitting next to you are sinners. Yeah. Yeah. It's afflicting at times, isn't it? It's it's burdensome to realize how much sin everyone else is, else is still dealing with. And if that weren't bad enough, you are afflicted with your own sin. Your biggest problem isn't your child, your spouse, that guy in front of you on 95. Your biggest problem is right here. It's in you. You are your worst afflictor. I am severely afflicted, and what do I do? I cry out to God. Give me life, Lord, according to your word. Life without God's word, life not according to God's word, is not even life worth living. He says, I am afflicted, and I need life according to your word. Can we pray that together? Can we say, in our affliction, I don't need you to fix that person. I don't need you to make the world a happier place. I just need you to give me life in you. I need life in you. Even as Peter says when he's, when all, so many of the disciples walk away from Christ in John, uh, he turns to his 12 and he says, well, what about you? Are you guys going to leave too? And Peter doesn't say, never. He says, where would we go? That's not the most uh, stellar of statements of faith. He just says, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. He's confused also. He's concerned, but he knows 
that life is found in the words of Christ. And he goes, he will not leave. Verse 108, accept my free will offering of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Just like in Psalm, in verse 106, the psalmist is responding to God's faithfulness. This time not with an oath, this time with a free will offering of praise. God has been faithful. I have received life when death was deserved. And when I recognize that, I realize that God is worthy of praise, of free will praise. Doesn't that sound a little ironic, free will offerings, that God commands free will offerings? And does that, doesn't that kind of make it not free will if God's commanding it? But let me ask you, in a, in a love relationship, is it, is it unloving to, to accept, expect free will expressions of love? I mean, is that, is that, is that a wrong thing to say to your spouse, uh, I, I wish you would uh, be a little more expressive of your love on more than just February 14th, Mother's Day or Father's Day, and our anniversary on the odd occasion that you remember it. Is it, is it unreasonable? And then is it, is it, is it too law-focused uh, to say, I want you to express your love for me freely? It is appropriate for God to say, do you see what I have done for you? It ought to produce in you an overflowing of free will offerings of praise. I have saved you from your sin. I have saved you from my wrath. It ought to produce in us a free will offering of praise. Verse 109, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. Probably sounds strange. It's a weird verse to understand. I hold my life in my hand continually, but we do. We have so many plans, don't we? You got so many things going on. You got so many plates that you're spinning, so many things you're trying to balance. I hold my life in my hand continually. There's so much. I've got desires. I've got dreams. I've got paths that I want to pursue. Don't let me forget your law. In my pursuit of what I think is my perfect life, let me always check it against your law. I hold my life in my hand continually. Do not let me forget your law. Verse 110 goes back to sort of the afflicted. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Even when I'm trapped or ensnared by the wicked, I will not stray from your precepts. There's a couple ways that we can be ensnared by the wicked or by wickedness. One is the obvious, you know, follow me. You know, come be like me. Come do what I do. The God is wrong. You know, it's the serpent in the garden. You will not surely die. Let me show you a better way. 
God is lying to you. He's withholding from you. He doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be miserable. The work, the wickedness that says, come and enjoy and lies to us. But there's another way that wickedness ensnares us, isn't it, there? When wickedness calls us to react to wickedness in kind. A cruel word deserves a cruel word. An unforgiving heart deserves a cold shoulder. A poorly driven car deserves sign language and words. We are ensnared by wickedness, even in the, way, the very ways that we react and respond to wickedness. The psalmist says, The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. We need God's word in order to avoid the snare, or even being ensnared, not to join in or react to in kind. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Your testimonies. What are God's testimonies? What are God's faithful witnessed words? These are his commitments. His promises that are given with an oath. These are his testimony. He bears testimony that his words are true. These are God's covenant promises. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Your offspring will build me a house and will sit on the throne forever. I have called you by name. You are mine. I am your Savior and Redeemer. God has sworn an oath according to the book of Hebrews, by his own name, because there is nothing greater than God's own name by which he might swear. You and I will swear by all kinds of things because they are bigger than us. When God wants you to know the surety of his words, he swears by his own name because there is nothing greater that he will save sinners by the work of his Son alone. This is God's testimony and ought to be the joy of every believer's heart. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They're the joy of my heart. I have been saved because you keep your promises. That ought to be the joy of my heart. And finally, I'm in, I, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. God did not spare his son, but freely gave him for us all. The Son of God willingly came to earth to fulfill God's covenant, God's testimony. So great was his love. How, how would we respond other than to incline our hearts to seek God's statutes forever to the end? Psalm 119 is far more than a picture of a man who loves prayer and a man who loves God's law. A person can pray 2,500 words 
because they love prayer and still be no closer to God than when they began. A person can love God's law and yet hate the God who gave it. Is this not exactly what was going on in the lives and minds and hearts of the Pharisees when Christ was on earth? Here is God himself, God incarnate here on earth. And there were those who delighted in prayer. And they loved the law. But they hated God. They loved precepts and rules and commands, but they hated the one who gave them. And you may think, aren't you overstating that a bit? But when the lawgiver came, they crucified him in hatred of him. But the psalmist, when you read Psalm 119, if all you see is a man who loves prayer and a man who loves God's word, you miss the whole point of the psalm. This is a man who loves God. This is such a personal and intimate, even as it's such a long prayer. This psalmist loves prayer and God's word because they bring him closer to God. He doesn't love them for themselves. He loves them because they bring him into God's presence. You know, if we look at prayer, a person can love to talk. That does not necessarily mean they love other people. We all know people. And if you don't know people, maybe you're those people. We all know people who seem to talk until they can think of something to say. You know, I've talked to my kids in the past about, you know, when you're listening, don't just wait for an opportunity to talk, but actually listen to what's being said, because that's, that's a danger that I find myself in, and that's why I tell my kids to beware. Because maybe I'll listen for the first 10 words, but then I know something witty, something clever, something just cynical enough to be seen as wise. Uh, and so then I just wait. And if you take too long a breath, I'm going to dive in. Okay, it's my turn. You can love to talk and hate people. A person can love intimacy and use people to gain it. When you love intimacy as the end itself, it leads purely to addiction and abuse. Always. Intimacy as a means of getting closer to the person that you love, that's what intimacy is for. Period. You can love an individual and you, and you reserve and use intimacy as an expression of love to that person. Or you can love intimacy and use people to get what you want out of it. The psalmist loves God and so he loves to pray and loves to listen. He loves intimacy because it brings him to God. There's so many ways that we can approach prayer and God's word as a means of binding God to our pleasure rather than as a means of learning God's pleasure. I can love prayer because I want to perform or I want God to perform. 
I can love God's word and God's law because it shows that I don't need God. It shows how great I am. I know it's a long chapter, but I would urge you today, take some time to just read through the whole chapter. See the intimacy of this chapter, the words of this prayer. As you read it, consider that only one person in life, including even, even counting the author, there's only one person who ever lived who, as you read this prayer, it doesn't convict you. Do you realize that Christ could read through the entirety of Psalm 119 and say, this absolutely perfectly is a reflection of my relationship with my Father? For the rest of us, including the psalmist, we read this and parts of it we recognize, I'm not here. I need to confess. I want to be here. This is where I want to be. You know, read it today. Or listen to it on an app. Listen to it at normal speed, though. Don't, don't, like, don't do two times or 17 times. Listen to it. Just let it just kind of wash over you. I pray that we at Hope of Christ, that, that we would love God so much that, that we would be a people who love His Word and love to pray just because they bring us closer to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us a people of your word and a people of prayer, not just as ends in themselves, but because they bring us closer to you. You who saved us from our sins, you who saved us from the death that we deserved, Jesus, would you fill us with your spirit that we, we would be known individually, as households, as a congregation. We would be known as people of prayer and people of the word. And when folks watch and wonder, they would not go away thinking there's a people who love praying but there's a people who love God in Jesus name amen